This episode of Design Matters is very special to me. In the show, I interview the actress and musician Catherine Gallagher, who, up until the COVID-19 pandemic, starred in the hit Broadway musical Jagged Little Pill. Catherine is also a big supporter of an organization I'm a part of, the Joyful Heart Foundation. Joyful Heart was founded in 2004 by actress and activist Mariska Hargitay, star of the long-running TV show Law & Order SVU. Mariska founded Joyful Heart to help eradicate domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse, and our work now focuses on eliminating the rape kit backlog in the United States. If you're interested in helping support this organization and our work in eliminating sexual violence, please go to the website at give.joyfulheartfoundation.org backslash design matters. Thank you so much for listening. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. On this episode, Debbie talks with Katherine Gallagher about her young career as an actor, singer, songwriter, and about trauma on and off the stage. When you go through trauma, you have to let it go through you. A quick warning, there is discussion of sexual assault in this episode. Here's Debbie. Once upon a time, when crowds gathered in theaters to watch actors upon the stage, Katherine Gallagher played Bella in Jagged Little Pill a Broadway musical based on the album by Alanis Morissette. I saw it. I was deeply moved by Katherine Gallagher's Bella, a young woman who is raped and who struggles to get others to believe her. Theaters are now closed because of the coronavirus, but you can still see Katherine Gallagher at work on the Netflix series You and on many other television shows. And you could hear her extraordinary voice on one of her two studio albums. Catherine joined me from her home in Connecticut, and here, dear listeners, I have a confession to make. Because we are socially isolating, Catherine Gallagher recorded herself on an excellent microphone, and I recorded myself at home with an excellent microphone. But my microphone failed. Such are the challenges of making a podcast during a pandemic. Fortunately, I had an iPhone backup going, so the show will go on. But that explains why I won't sound quite like myself. In any case, I opened my conversation with Catherine Gallagher by remarking on her passion for bagels. (laughs) Yes, I am. They're my favorite food. They always have been. I just made my first batch of bagels last week or no, maybe not a couple weeks ago. I I love bagels. They're like my favorite thing. Wow. <laughs> so you make them yourself? You love them that much? I love them that much. Well, I realized that up in Connecticut, you know, there's the bakeries aren't open. Like, it's going to be hard to find a good bagel. So, you know, I'm not saying, like, I'm a professional bagel maker. I wouldn't go so far as to say that at all. There are real pros. But I figured maybe a freshly baked amateur bagel would would do justice to my cravings and I was so right it was so so good like I've never had a bagel just like 
fresh out of the oven. And it was like, I ordered the barley malt. Like, I did it up. I like wow. all of them. I did the whole thing. And they're so, oh my God. And then I made my own vegan cream cheese. And it would just, it was really special. I unearthed another fun fact about you when I was preparing oh, no. for our show today. I understand that you were the only girl at your summer camp that could dig up earthworms. How did you develop I, that I talent? <laughs> Well, you see, I it's so funny because I've been building all these gardens in my yard since this thing started. And it's been the first time since I was like eight that I've been playing with earthworms. But all the other girls were too afraid of them. But my dad used to take me fishing all the time. Uh-huh. And so I would dig for my own earthworms. And so I always knew where like the good soil was to find the earthworms. And I thought that would make me like a hot object like for all the for all the kids. I was like, yeah. What hot girl, like, I don't know. In my brain, I was like, this makes me a desirable partner that I can find the good earthworms. Absolutely. It did it at all. I was just the weird girl that what? knew where the earthworms were. <laughs> like in my <laughs> brain, I was like, this is a this is a bankable skill. Um, but I always knew where they were. So whenever anyone wanted to go fishing, I was like, yeah, I'll get your earthworms. So, How are you doing so, over there in Connecticut? Well, uh, there's lots of earthworms. So that's a good sign. <laughs> Good soil. <laughs> yeah, it's great soil. You know, I'm doing all right. I I definitely when this started, I needed a break. When like there the the week or so leading up to this, I in the show, I was so exhausted. I was so I mean, that role emotionally is intense. And I was just like one foot in front of the other. So the first week I was like, this is incredible. I've needed this break so badly. I'd been working so hard in a nonstop circle of press and working and in the studio during the day and doing the show at night. And, like, I I love to work, but I definitely pushed it. And so the first week I was just really, you know, I set up this mic and I started recording and I started writing and I was really coming back to myself and and dealing with a few things emotionally that I didn't have space for during the show. And just kind of like talking to my parents every day. I was close. I'm closer with my friends now than I have been because I haven't had time to talk to them or the vocal like energy to talk to them after a show. And I think now I'm definitely getting to the point where, you know, my heart is breaking a little bit for it's so rare that you, you, you know, and I, I understand the global implications of this are so large. But, you know, we've been working on Jagged Little Pill for three years. And so it's like, oh, wow you know, what if I don't ever get to do this again? But when I think about how devastating this has been to so many people and in the grand scheme of things, I'm I'm pretty lucky. You're staying in the house that you lived in since you were two years old. I understand you're going through a lot of your old journals. What has that been like? Is What is it like reuniting with your former self through your journals? I will say I always had a very vivid imagination. <laughs> say (laughs) I would say I haven't changed at all my god it's been there was one journal in particular I found where it says um something along the lines of I don't think I'm a mermaid but I know I'm a water creature I know I have magical powers like that was I was just like are you a water sign astrologically no I don't even like swimming that much it was just this one summer where we have a brook right outside the house and I would just like sit in the brook and like look under rocks for salamanders like I had like three pet salamanders like I was just a weird kid 
was a lonely, weird kid. You are the daughter of Paula Harwood and the well-known actor Peter Gallagher. You're also the granddaughter of Paulette Harwood, the longtime owner and dance teacher at Paulette's Ballet Studio. So you come from a long line of artists. (laughs) I do indeed. I do. Very much the family business. Catherine, your dad was in the Broadway play Noises Off in 2001, and you grew up playing with co-star Patti LuPone's son, Josh Johnson. And I read that you would run around the Brooks Atkinson Theater like it was a playground and got to know all of the crew and the doorman. Um, Did you have a sense of how special that was at the time? Honestly, it's so bizarre because when you're a kid, you always want what you don't have. And so to me, there was nothing cooler than my friends who's had their last name on pencils from their dad's offices. Like, <laughs> I thought that was the like the peak of success and the coolest thing. And so for me, I don't think I really had any idea that what I was experiencing was different or strange. And I certainly had no idea that being an actor was something that for a lot of people seemed like a, a strange possibility. Um, And so I think it was very much like, it just felt very much like home. It felt like, oh yeah, does your dad not powder his nose before he goes on stage in front of 1,200 people every night? (laughs) It just was so, it was so what I was used to. And that and like being on set and all these things, it was the most normal work environment that I knew. The idea of going to an office, I was like, that's fancy. They wouldn't even let me in. You know what I mean? <laughs> Isn't that interesting how we always project out what we don't have? Honestly. You focused on music first and began learning how to play the guitar when I believe you were eight years old. Why did you choose music over theater at that time? I think I'm sure there was some level of it that was like, you know, I'm not my dad. That's my dad's job and I'm going to do something different. And then I think there's also, you know, at my core my favorite thing to do has always been like, I've been making up songs since I was like two years old. My mom would be like in the front seat of the the car and say like, okay, Catherine, like make up a song about a bus. And so I've been making up songs my whole life. And that to me seems like the easiest and most cathartic way to understand the world around me or anything I'm going through. And so when I started playing guitar, you know, growing up, I idolized Melissa Etheridge. I idolized Alanis. I idolized all these women in rock. And I think my mom also, she saw this sort of, number one, she heard my gravelly voice and she was like, okay, so we know we know what kind of song she's going to be singing. And she really fostered that in me and made sure I had incredible women to look up to in rock music. And so I you know, was listening to like Blink-182. I was listening to all of these bands that were these loud. I played electric guitar first. Like I was listening to loud, like power chords. Like that was what I was most passionate about. And, you know, at the end of the day, I was like this sensitive little emo kid who just wanted to write all my feelings (laughs) into into songs and nothing has changed. Um, And I also, I never imagined it being an either or. But theater, I needed other people to do it with. And my guitar, I could just sit alone in my room and and pretend I had an audience, (laughs) you know. Do you have any recollection of your first song, the very first song you ever wrote? I do. Um, (gasps) Can you sing a few bars? 
Yeah, when I was, uh, it's so embarrassing. When I was seven, maybe six, second grade, so I guess that's six, I wrote this song called Confidence. Um, and I believe the melody was something like, now I'm like singing it in my head, it's probably another song, but I know I wrote the lyrics. And it was like, you gotta have confidence and you can reach the stars. <laughs> you gotta oh. have confidence and you can do a thousand cartwheels. <laughs> that oh. was like what I was going for. So I just remember that. And, and um, I had a band in second grade and I was the only kid not allowed to write songs for it, but we had a song that was like so inappropriate. I don't even know where it came from. Wait, why we were weren't you allowed to write songs? Why weren't you? I don't know, because I was the choreographer. Oh, that was okay. my role. <laughs> They were like, no, 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 we are the songwriters, you're the choreographer. And I was like, okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Well. You just accept things at that age. <laughs> now, I believe your first acting role was as Cornelia Collins in Hairspray. You were 11. Where was the production of the play? It was at the Adderley School um, in Los Angeles, uh, where we did like after school theater. And yeah, it was the first time I'd ever done a musical, anything like that. That is like, I'm so impressed that you found that out. Where did that even come from? When did uh, I say that? I have my ways. <laughs> you are impressive. My God, I'm blown away. <laughs> That's incredible. Thank you. Thank um, you. <laughs> so yeah, I was... We were looking for a place because we wanted to enroll me in theater in New York. But at the time, all the kids just went professional. So once we moved to L.A., we were like, oh, there's great after school theater. So I started off by going to Adderley for dance classes because I was dancing at Broadway Dance Center in New York. Um, so I moved. I started taking dance class. And then like the spring semester, they were doing Hairspray, which I loved. And so I auditioned and I got Cornelia Collins. And it was just like a blast. And then I fell in love. And then that was where I met Ben Platt, Molly Gordon, um, and some of my like absolute best friends. I read that you also had Disney Channel ambitions and dreamed of playing Mitchie on Camp Rock. Um, you even went so far as to write an original song that I believe was titled I'm Okay for a possible Correct. audition. Um, <laughs> tell us the story of how you wrote the song and, and then what ended up happening. Well, I I signed up for a backstage account um, when I was 13 years old because um I and Backstage very... is a, a theater publication, correct? Yes. Yeah. So they have a bunch of listings for all these different auditions. And I was like, well, you know, I, I don't want to be in school. I'm ready to work. Like, I'm an adult. Screw it. I was, like, so defiant and so stubborn. And you were 13. I was 13, yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, this was when, like, Miley Cyrus had just done Hannah She was doing Hannah Montana. Like, 13 felt old. I was like, I'm losing my prime mom <laughs> let me <laughs> let me work she was like no <laughs> you're a kid um and so i signed up for this backstage account and i found this listing for this character mitchy 16 singer songwriter goes to summer camp like rock camp it was like a camp that was based on my summer camp like it would just it felt so destined like i was like this is everything i've ever needed to do in my life and so i went into my parents room and i was like guys this is it. This is my big break. Da, 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 this movie. And they were like, no. And my dad goes, what he's always said is you only have one chance to be a kid. He was like, we love you. We support you. But you only have one chance to be a kid. So, you know, savor it. Get back to it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, exactly. Walk it off. So I like threw a temper tantrum, slammed the door, picked up my guitar, and I wrote this song called I'm Okay, which was basically like, hey, I'm gonna, you know, 
I'm okay. Like I can do this. I can handle this. This is what I love. And I know it's scary and I know it's hard. And yeah. And then my dad and, and my mom were both like, okay, well, she's going to do this anyway. So we might as well be supportive um, and let her know we have her back. And I mean, honestly, since that moment, they've never pressured me to do anything. If anything, they've pressured me to do less. Um, and, and they just have been the most supportive, most incredible sounding board and, and, you know, family <laughs> truly sadly tragically you didn't get the part the role went to nope. Demi Lovato uh, <laughs> was you said amazing you, you yes you said your biggest regret was that you didn't get to kiss Joe Jonas um but how do you get over or how do you deal with rejection at such a young age and still maintain any sense of real possibility I I don't know I don't remember being heartbroken about it weirdly I think I was just like, okay, what's next? And, you know, at the time I was sort of in, the, I had just started working in the studio. I was working with this incredible musician, Greg Sutton, who used to tour with Dylan. And so I would just like spend all my weekends with him and playing him songs I'd written and learning, you know, new tricks on guitar and new, and sort of figuring out what it's like to be in a studio. And, and that was when I think I really, really dove more into music and just really tried to make that my my main focus. You you went to uh, University of Southern California. Um, did you study uh, music and theater? I studied, I was in the pop music program. So I was in the third year of this incredible program. It's like 25 kids per year, five drummers, five singers, five songwriters, five guitarists, and um, sort of everyone coming from very different backgrounds. It's And then you, you know, become this very tight-knit, group of 25 people and it's really really special i i dropped it was not for me i'll I'll say that much it was definitely you know i had i'd spent all of high school in the studio i had had a record deal that then i left and i had the songs and films i'd done all of these things that felt like these big professional accomplishments but i was really far behind when it came to music theory and um you know, actual musicianship. Like I, I had just sort of played a couple chords on guitar and written melodies and, and sung and, and done theater. But when it came to that, I hadn't spent hours practicing guitar. I hadn't spent hours honing my craft. And, and so entering that, that school with a ton of people that were really, really skilled musicians, the emphasis was on something that was so far away from my skill set that I was constantly catching up and losing sight of why I loved it. And so it ended up having me in this really, really big crisis of confidence where I was like, I, what am I even doing? And, you know, it, it was a really, really painful time. It was, I was struggling with eating disorders. I was struggling with believing in my own intellect. I was struggling with friendships and, and everything. I was like, I, I had nothing to hold on to. And so after a year, I packed up my dorm room. I shut off all social media. I spent like a summer off the grid, went to New York, hung out with just like my best friends from high school that were in the city also, and uh, started taking voice lessons with Joan Later, who's still my teacher. She's incredible and started sort of auditioning again and dipping my toe back into the sort of theater community. And that was when I was like, oh, I'm a hybrid. I was like, I'm not just this, and I'm not just this, and I'm not just this. And, And it sort of was this really pivotal moment of like, it's okay to do your own thing. It's okay to sort of like not know what you're doing. And then I, I went back part-time to USC and um, 
lived off campus and and sort of started writing sessions and started taking a, an, a you know long form writing class and all of these different things and building my own curriculum and that was really incredible. Do you feel that being a hybrid is something that people understand? Is it okay to be a hybrid now? For a long time, you could only do one thing. You could be the, either be an actor or a musician, but not both. I think that I was definitely, I grew up thinking I had to choose. And it was interesting because I always had the secret plan. Where I was like, well, I'll do music first. And then eventually I'll, I'll be allowed to go do Broadway. Because I was like, you know, they always have like someone going in to do Velma. So like... <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of my, like, I was like, I know at some point I have to do a Broadway show. It's my dream. It's like one of my oldest passions. I knew that I would do it someday. And I just was so sure that, that music would be first. And I was so sure that I had to choose. And I knew that, you know, when it came to film and TV, I was like, well, I don't look like anyone on TV. I was like, I'm not skinny enough to be ingenue or the lead of any show I've ever seen. I was just like... I don't fit into any box that I've seen on screen. This is like, you know, when I was in high school, this is before girls, this is before anything. It was like, you're tiny and beautiful and, you know, <laughs> this sort of kind of character or you're a character actor or whatever. There were just such strict rules and I didn't see any way that I was going to fit on television. So I was like, well, I can't be an actor. I can't be a straight actor because I don't look like one. And on Broadway... I was like, I, I know I'll find a way there somewhere. I have to, but it'll be after I write enough songs that I can, you know, just like I had this idea of how it all worked. And I think that by the time I was like 21, maybe right before Spring Awakening started, I just stopped caring because I, I loved Broadway and I loved writing songs. And I was like, well, what do I know? I'm like, I'm having, I, you know, when I heard about Spring Awakening happening, I was like, well, it's my favorite show. So who am I to turn that down? And so I just did that. And then I just did music. How did, how did Spring Awakening manifest? How did it, did it come to you? Was it something that you went and sought? It was crazy. I was um, home one day and one of my best friends, Ben, who I met at Adderley, he called me and he was like, hey, my friend Michael is doing this tiny production of Spring Awakening in uh, L.A. It'd be like a weekend gig with Deaf West. And anyway, he wants to to call you and I uh, played him your music and he loves your voice. So would you be interested? And he, I gave him your number. And I was like, oh, sure. <laughs> and then Michael called me and we had coffee and talked about it. And he originally wanted me for Ilsa. And I was so excited because that was my absolute dream role. Like truly just, I've wanted to play that role since I was a little kid. My my true, true, true favorite songs, everything. Lauren Pritchard is like, well, now she's like my big sister. But then I was just a huge fan. And um, then he was like, keep your summer free. And I was like, okay. And then I didn't hear anything for a while. Maybe a month or two, I'd gone to Nashville in the middle. I was working with Steve Cropper. I was like having a great time. And I was about to start an album in the spring in LA. And so I was like, you know, I was okay. And I was busy. And one day I'm on the internet and I see this, uh, this listing for Spring Awakening. And I was like, well, they're casting calling all characters. So I guess I'm not playing Elsa. <laughs> I was like, good to know. And so mm. I texted him and I was like, hey, like, what's happening? Like, and he was like, oh my God, like, you'll be getting a call soon. And I was like, okay, great nothing and I was just like that sucks like that's a really like lame way to get re 
rejected, but I was like, whatever. And then one night, uh, my best friend and I, who I lived with at the time, were walking her like 80 pound incredible dog, Rocky. And we were like, let's get ice cream. We're in our pajamas. I'm head to toe in like a hot pink sweatsuit, truly like Ugg slippers, like nothing impressive happening. And we walked down the street to go get gelato at this place we'd never been. She's outside waiting with the dog. And I go in and I'm not like the smoothest of all people in uncomfortable situations, as you might be able to imagine. And uh, so I go, I go inside and I have my hood up because why not? And um, I hear someone very quietly say, Catherine. And I was like, that's in your head. That didn't happen. Like I'm, I'm, I got blinders on. And it gets louder and louder, and he he goes, uh, Catherine, I turn around, and it's Michael, who's, of course, has not cast me in Spring Awakening. So I'm like, okay. Like, <laughs> and hasn't told you that he cool. hasn't cast you. <laughs> exactly. So I'm just like, okay, like, act like nothing's happened. So I go over to his table, and I was like, oh, my God, hi. It is so good to see you. It's so incredible to see you. How are you? What flavor do you got? Oh, you got the Rocky Road. I love the Rocky Road. I usually like the kind of coffee kind, but my roommate gets a lemon and vanilla, which I kind of think is like a weird combination. But anyway, it's so great to see you. Love the Rocky Road. It's so good to see you. I hope you're great. Anyway, I got to go because like the dog's outside. And anyway, it's so great to see you. And I like run away. I get these ice cream flavors. I run out to my roommate and I'm like, you will not believe that director is Spring Awakening. He's in there. And, and she was like, I can't believe you got my lemon and vanilla in the same cup. And I was like... <laughs> I'm going through something here. <laughs> I need your help. He goes, uh, I need me. to go get another cup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, this is so rude. And so she goes inside to get another cup and abandons me with the dog outside. And then all of a sudden she starts talking to him. And I was like, I'm outside being like, that's the guy. And she's like, what? I'm like, that's the guy. Turns out they had done a television show together. So she brings him out to meet her dog and her roommate. And he's like, oh, your roommate's Catherine. And then we're all like in this like circle talking. And I eventually was like, so how's that production of Spring Awakening going? And he was like, great. Why didn't you come in for your audition? And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, we were waiting for you yesterday. You were on our list. And I was like, what? Dude. <laughs> <laughs> no one told me. <laughs> and so then, uh, well, then he had to call me to, then I went into audition two days later and he was like, hey, we're going in an entirely different direction with the role. Um, you'll get it when you see it. Uh, yeah, I hope you come see it and I hope you enjoy it. And I was like, okay. And they weirdly enough ended up casting Lauren Patton. And so that was like the biggest heartbreak rejection I had felt, I think, up until that point because it was such a dream role of mine and I, I thought it was mine. <laughs> thought it was mine. And then uh, the my last day in the studio, I get a call from Michael and he goes, hey, we just had someone drop out. Could you do the voice of Marta? Um, you'd be playing guitar in the band. And uh, I'm, he was literally he was like, I'm on my knees. Like, I need you. It's rehearsals are tomorrow. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, it's my favorite show. Okay. And now looking back on it, being able to learn how to play guitar better I was playing, I was like getting private guitar lessons with Duncan Sheik, writing new guitar lines in a Broadway musical. I'm like, that was, that's my dream role. There's nothing else I would have rather been doing. There's so everything was like about that was so cosmic. And I think that whole thing just taught me like, whatever's meant for you will come to you. And, and it's like, it's gonna happen. And, and, you know, even the things that, uh, that might feel like minor heartbreaks in the beginning can turn out to be the biggest blessings.
You mentioned Lauren Patton. She is your co-star in Jagged Little Pill. After Spring Awakening, I understand you went through a bit of a dry spell. And you you wrote this. You have no idea that this job will lead to a year and a half of zero callbacks, a brand new puppy, a few minor heartbreaks, and eventually a two-week stretch where you will book a TV show called You and a brand new musical called Jagged Little Pill. How did you persevere through that? I mean, how does, I mean, the thing about acting and, and performing is that there seems to be such a foundation of you're not good enough, you're not accepted, you're rejected. How do you persevere in the face of that much uh, rejection? It's so funny. I was talking to my cousin about this the other day. I think that for me, I just knew, like, what else are you going to do? You know? <laughs> Just keep one foot in front of the other, whatever feels right the next day. And, you know, for me, I think that whole sort of year and a half for me was not great, not wonderful at all. Um, I certainly wasn't working. I certainly wasn't thriving emotionally. I wasn't falling in love. I was like, there was no, there was no great growth or happiness or joy in that time. I think I learned how to be a person a little bit. I tried a lot of things on. I tried pink hair for about six months. I tried, <laughs> I was like, you know, trying trying on all these different, not personalities, I've always been the same person, but sort of like, okay, today I'm going to wear only glitter on my cheek for a month straight. And I like, there's all these different things of like, when else? And, you know, it was when I started like exploring, when I started sort of dating women for the first time. It was when I... Um, it was, there's was such a period of growth and exploration that I do feel really grateful now that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in a, in a better place professionally and, and sort of busier. Like, you know, I was going out to bars and I was staying out late and I was like enjoying my life in a way that in college I didn't really do. I didn't have, you know, that kind of social scene. And, um, in high school, I took myself very seriously. And so, you know, and this was also the time I met my best friend. And so there was like, that was sort of the greatest romance uh, of my time, you know, was just like, oh, wow, I have a best friend. I have a partner in this. And so, you know, her and I also always joke about this time period because it's like, oh, we were disasters, like truly, absolutely messes. But I was lucky because I wasn't really working. So the stakes were low. I wasn't missing out on anything because I wasn't booking anything. <laughs> it was nothing to miss out on. I was just unemployed and and I was, you know, just figuring it out. And I think that's something that doesn't get enough respect in 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 someone's like growth. You have to have a time where you are falling on your face and failing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Ending up face you know face down in the street emotionally. Exactly. It's like. What you know, that was when I got a dog. It was like all these things where it's like, you know, I was just I was figuring it out. <laughs> well, in 2013, you sent oh, no. an email to your parents with a link to an article reporting that Alanis Morissette was developing a musical adaptation of her truly groundbreaking 1995 album Jagged Little Pill for the stage. What did you write in the email to your parents? I need to do this. <laughs> Pithy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to the point. 
<laughs> yes, um, I, it's so funny. I don't have any recollection of writing that email, but when I was when I had just gotten the job, I was looking for my like first week schedule. So I searched in my email, jagged little pill, and I found that email, and I was like, "That's some manifestation if I've ever seen it." Yeah, it is. Talk about living the dream. My God, I mean, truly. So up until the pandemic hit, you were quite literally living the actual dream, your actual dream, performing on stage eight times a week in the Broadway adaptation of Jagged Little Pill. You pay Bell, you play Bella Fox, the very character you originated since participating in the very first lab rehearsal. Con- congratulations. I mean, that is, talk about <laughs> manifestation. Um, Even hearing you say that like made me emotional. I was like, oh, oh yeah, good, this was a good, good year. <laughs> I mean, it is an extraordinary play. I, I, I have seen it. It is absolutely breathtaking. How, how did you actually get the role after sending the email? <laughs> I had heard that they were doing a reading back in June. Um, so I wrote to my reps. and I, So this was June of 2017. I wrote to my reps and I was like, I'll do anything. Like, get me in the room, please. And they they wrote back, and at the time they were represent or they're still representing Adina Menzel, but at the time she was part of the project, and so they had the script, and they were like, "There is nothing for you," and I was like, "Damn!" <laughs> so I was just like, kind of went, kept going on with my with my life, and over that summer was when I really decided. You know, that whole year for me had been filled with a lot of sessions, a lot. I was writing a lot, I was recording a lot. I hadn't released anything, and nothing was really fruitful, and. But I was definitely like music had become far more my focus. So I just met with these producers in L.A. that I was really stoked. I was like about to pack up to L.A. to go there for three months and work on music with them pretty much exclusively and really buckle down and get it done. So I got on a plane, packed up all my stuff. And when I landed, I went on a on a two day trip with my mom to Mexico right before this. I flew to L.A., went to Mexico And which actually ended up being, it was really a magical trip because I had sort of been in this cloud of insecurity and especially a lot of body insecurity issues. And and ironically enough, when I landed from Mexico, I got 27 missed calls from my reps saying, hey, you you booked this job on you. Fly back to New York. Your table read is on Tuesday. And ironically, that character on you, my audition and and a little bit of it made it into the series, was all about body positivity. It was all about accepting yourself. It was all about these things and these conversations I had just had in depth with my mom and sort of like this healing trip that we both went on together. And so that was what brought me back to New York was filming the first season of You, which is why, though, I was able when I found out about the Jagged Little Pill auditions, my reps were like, hey, it's a general ensemble call. You don't have to go, but we know you love this show. So um, we know you're busy and and doing a TV show during the dates of, the, <laughs> of this lab, but we didn't want to not tell you about it. And I was like, oh, it's like, you know, 100%, like I'll go in, whatever. And it's Jagged Little Pill, who knows? And they were like, they say there's going to be a couple roles sprinkled in the ensemble. And I was like, okay, sure. So go in, and then I get called back for Bella, which at the time was a featured ensemble role. It was one scene, and it was the scene that was somewhat similar to the scene that's now on the couch in the Broadway production, if anyone has seen it. And it, interestingly enough, coincided with just, you know, a couple months before I had written this song called Dear Little Girl, and it was a song I wrote 
about sort of my own experience in, in dealing with what Bella's dealt with. And so it was it was the first time I had approached that same subject through acting, but not the first time I'd approached it sort of within my own life and, and in my own artistic expression. And so I just thought like, well, I know this girl. <laughs> and so I went in and I did the scene and I remember calling my manager after and I was like, well, it was either the worst thing I've ever done or the best. And I don't know. And then I went in for a couple more rounds of auditions and then found out I got it. And the you producers were just so kind and generous and lovely. Sarah Gamble, Greg Berlanti, Sarah Schechter, the best people on the planet. And they were kind enough to write me out of two episodes and still bring me back for more so that I could do this lab, which is just like endlessly generous and kind and wonderful. And I'm forever indebted to them for that. So yeah, I, I got out of a couple episodes of TV to do this lab and thankfully it all worked out. <laughs> it's a bit of a gamble on my part, but <laughs> thankfully we're doing okay. Bella evolved initially, as you as you mentioned, from an ensemble part to really a central character in the, in the play. Um, her sexual assault ignites the entire um, plot. And without giving away too many spoilers, can you share a little bit of Bella's story? Of course, yeah. So Bella is in Nick Healy's year in, in high school, and Frankie and uh, Joe are the year below. And... Um, she comes from a sort of uh, less fortunate family, and there is a, a party in the high school where she gets assaulted, and it involves the Healy family, and it sort of sends shockwaves through the family and, and you know, reminds MJ of trauma she's experienced. And the whole show, really, and, and Bella and MJ in particular, I think highlights so beautifully what happens when you sweep things under the rug that you never really can. Mm. You can't really, I mean, as Alana says, under rug swept. Under rug swept, <laughs> yes. You know, I think it's it's something I've learned in my own life, absolutely. And I think the show just exemplifies it even more is that when you go through trauma, you have to let it go through you. <laughs> you don't get to put it away. Um, I mean, I know especially it's, it's interesting. This time for me has been magical in terms of having time to sort of, I said this to Anthony Ramos actually the other night, who's one of my really good friends. We were on FaceTime and I was like, yeah, you can't open up a box unless you have time to organize what's inside. And so this whole time for me has been opening up a box and organizing what's inside. But I think for, you know, a character like MJ, she didn't do that. And for a character like Bella, what's so beautiful about the show is that she was in a time for women where there was hope to be believed. She wasn't by a lot of people, <laughs> but at least there was hope. There were kids in her school, Joe and Frankie, that said, we believe you. And that's something that MJ didn't have. And that's something that so many generations of women, of survivors, of all, all genders, all identifying genders, but that they didn't have the option or or they didn't believe they had the option to be believed, which I think is the most heartbreaking and eye-opening sort of parallel in the show is how women of MJ's age were raised to believe, you know, what their responsibility was in the situation and their, what they were, you know, the belief they were deserved of um, that was stripped from them. And then the, how a 16-year-old girl today has a little bit more hope to to feel like there's a safe space to to tell her story to, which there is. 
Ultimately, there is. She goes yeah. through quite a lot to get her community, her friends to really believe. She stands up and tells her story in the face of an entire community that initially doesn't and doesn't want to believe her. They call her yes. terrible names. They taunt her. They taunt her family. Where does that strength in Bella come from? Is, is she's really the only person on stage that initially believes in herself. Yeah, that's so beautifully put. I've actually never thought about it like that. It's true. It's, I think for Bella, she doesn't have anything left to lose. Hmm. I think she doesn't have a mother who is supportive in the ways you would hope a mother would be in that situation. She doesn't have a friend group, really. You know, Nick has, at that point in the show, at least in the beginning, chosen his allegiance somewhere else. And yeah, he abandons her. Entirely. And the only thing she has is the truth. That is the only thing that is keeping her alive. And this is with the help of Joe and Frankie, you know, who aren't really her friends. <laughs> it was always the thing that we sort of struggled with in, in the beginning of working through the show was like, well, they're not friends. So what? where does this come from? Where does this community come from? Where does this, you know? And I think that Bella's strength really does come from... She's already in a shitstorm, so, so there's no point in backing down now. And I think that she just is, you know, a strong fight. I think she's a fighter. I think to her core, she is just a, you know, I, I want to see what Bella does in, in 20 years. I think she'll be, you know, leading some incredible organization and, you know, at the front of the picket lines. I just think that she's she's a character with so much um, depth and strength and inspires me daily. You've said that Bella has taught you everything about what it means to be brave and what it means to be honest. How so? Telling the truth is scary because when you're in a situation where you're told your truth doesn't matter or you're made to believe that what you experienced wasn't accurate <laughs> or what your memories, your thoughts, your, when you're being gaslit by your surroundings, when you're constantly in this, this whirlwind, when you're given a million reasons to doubt yourself and the only thing that you have left is your own experience and Bella's ability to hold tight to that, would it have been momentarily easier for her to not say anything? In some ways. Just momentarily, not yeah, long term. Exactly. <laughs> Thank God we have MJ to show us, you know, the dangers of 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 holding on to it, you know, and sweeping it under the rug. But, you know, when I went through that, I didn't tell anybody at all. I held I on either. to it. Yeah. I didn't know you went through something like that. Yeah, yeah. Many years, nine to twelve. Isn't it really wild how it sits in you? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, take four years in a, in a life and then 50 plus years to, to sort it all out. That's, God, that's the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, in my own experience, I went home. I didn't tell anybody. I had panic attacks alone in my car. I didn't know why. I did not connect it. I didn't sleep for months. I didn't connect it. Like there was all of these disconnected things that were happening that were absolutely outside of my life beforehand. And... It took me, I was actually watching an episode of Law and Order. SVU. Yeah. <laughs> Our favorite. And I, truly, I mean, 
thank God for Detective Benson. What would we do without her? Oh, my God. What would we do? But I remember I was sitting on my couch and I was watching this episode of SVU and it was one about domestic violence. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God. Just this moment of like, that's what that was. Mm -hmm. And then it took me another like, you know, eight months in therapy to be able to say it out loud. (laughs) But Bella didn't have that. Bella, her ability to stand in her, her power and tell her truth and stick to it no matter what was thrown in her face I mean, it's been so cathartic for me and so healing for me. And I know from so many of the people that have seen the shows that have reached out to me that watching somebody, it's not be unafraid, it's be strong in the face of fear. I think that's so powerful about her. And it's been freeing to so many people that have seen it and and had sort of cathartic experiences and seeing their experience shown in such a strong light. It's an interesting time in, in that the show came out or the show was in lab right before the real explosion of the Me Too movement. Yeah. Um, it was during the lab when everything broke about Harvey Weinstein. And and there are echoes of other real world events in Jagged Little Pill, particularly for your character. I understand that Chanel Miller's memoir, Know My Name, which detailed her experience of being sexually assaulted by Brock Turner. Chanel has also been on our show. Um, helped you give so voice. Much. Helped you give voice to Bella. In what way did it help you give voice to her? You know, her book came out when we were in rehearsals for Broadway, um, and I had it on pre-order. I was so excited, and every page I turned, I could not believe the similarities and the stories that we had already been telling, and the story that she told in her book and experienced, and the way that she spoke about strength and vulnerability and the moments of depression, of self-doubt, of, I mean, she's also a genius writer. So how eloquently she was able to tell her story was, it's like just such a gift to the world. Everyone needs to read this book. Um, I've read it four times now. (laughs) It's like, but it, and it was really perfectly, um, she was able to demonstrate the complexities of emotion that you feel she did that so gracefully and the way she was able to explain her anger and her sadness and her just this this true confluence of emotion um was so helpful there would be so many times where i would have it i had it every single day in the rehearsal room and i would run up to diane and i'd be like okay do you see this part <laughs> Like be showing her these things so enthusiastically, like we have to find a way to make this, to put this in the show. This is like this emotion. We have to make sure that we're portraying this. This is what it feels like. And and it was just such an incredible guideline for us to to make sure that we were, you know, everyone's experience is so different, but we wanted to make this feel true and honest and not sensationalize anything and we wanted to to show the progress of how one experiences trauma in an accurate way because i think it's not always what it, you think it looks like in your in your imagination it's not always screaming and crying sometimes it's entirely being frozen and numb and seething with anger it's all of these things and so how do you show that in you know with a supporting character in two scenes <laughs> brilliantly in your case 
Um, I know you. you were also influenced by testimony of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford in yes. the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. What What did you learn about the nature of being believed when disclosing sexual violence? I think my biggest takeaway is that you won't always be. Mm. That no matter how far we've come, no matter your, you know, in the case of Dr. Ford, your professional accomplishments, no matter your your intellect, no matter your prestige, you will be told it's your fault by someone. You will be told, you know, <laughs> that you deserved it by some troll on the internet. And that none of that takes away from your experience being one of someone else's shame, something that has nothing to do with what you were wearing and how drunk you were and what, you know, who you flirted with in the beginning of the night. Like that, I think that the biggest takeaway of that for me especially was, you know, here's a woman who is a brilliant, successful professional and she is being torn apart because someone else did something to her and they have decided and they and they don't take the blame and there's always going to be somebody who's ready to tear you down and all you have is you know yourself and the people willing to stand next to you to to stand in your truth and in your power since the beginning of the show's initial run in Boston, I know you've been contacted by women uh, of all ages and races who want to share their own stories of sexual assault. And in some cases, you're the first person they're telling. What's that been like for you? That's taking a lot in. I know, um, you know, you mentioned Mariska Hargitay, and I know that part of the reason she started her foundation, the Joyful Heart Foundation, was because of all the people that were disclosing to her. How do you yeah. manage with all of that energy? I will say the first text I sent was to Mariska. I was like, okay. <laughs> I think you're good. I think I relate to you in a, in a certain way and I might need help with this. Um, the first thing I did when I realized it was going to be more than one or two messages was I went to ART and to Diane Paulus um, in particular. And I said, hey, I think, and this was when the role was still featured ensemble, really not like I was changing clothes every other number to like go back in the ensemble and like headbang and, you know, body roll in between sort of these like tear. Very tear intense choreography. Scenes. Yes. Oh my God. It was truly, <laughs> that was an unsustainable track. I'm very lucky that that run was only six weeks. Um, cause I was definitely losing my mind by the end of it. Um, that emotional roller coaster. Um, but I went straight to Diane Paulus and, and, the team at ART. And I said, Hey, I think I need training. I was like, I, I was looking online at a couple places. I wanted to do the hotline training, but they require 40 hours and a very strict schedule as they should. And I was like, I know I can't do this. I can't make all these times because of our show schedule. But I was wondering if we could, if I could find some training. So I know the most appropriate way to respond and how to best approach this because I don't, the last thing I want to do is, is be a negative experience and someone sharing their story. And so the first thing I did was getting, was got trained and we opened that up to our whole cast and crew. And so anyone who wanted to also got that with me, which I thought was so special. And what kind of training was it specifically? We worked with the Boston area rape crisis center. And so they gave us like a overview hotline training. And so basically, you know, 
we're most encouraged to have survivors call the hotline because there's incredible resources there. Um, and also to know, like, you know, there's things you, you do say and there's things you don't say. And I, and, you know, for me, my instinct was always, and, and it ended up being, you know, a, a good one. I think it's, it's an honor to be told someone's story. It's like a, it's a gift. It's an experience that you have together. It's a, it's an honor to be trusted with that. And so I think for me, it was always, I always felt a lot of gratitude that somebody felt that I could be a safe place to, to, um, share this, this story. And, and it was a world and an experience that I was living in. And so, you know, especially in the case of, of some of the, the younger survivors that I spoke with, it was a lot. It was heartbreaking. You don't want to believe there's bad things in the world. And sometimes until those bad things happen to you, you kind of don't see them. And I think what I'm really grateful for, for having been able to talk to so many survivors and, and have these um, incredibly meaningful connections, is that I learned that these stories, like every night that I felt it was hard doing the show, because it's a hard place to go. <laughs> I would remember that, I mean, even just statistically speaking, there's a high percentage of survivors in that audience every single night. Oh, yeah. One in three women, one in six men. Yeah, that's, you know, if you were to put a spotlight on every survivor in that house, there's a lot of people feeling a lot of things watching this story. And I thought about if I were 21, and I had seen this show, how much that would have meant to me. And it made, it replaced any level of like pain that I was feeling and turned it into gratitude, which was this, which was a constant tool and, and mental exercise. I'm not saying I was like perfect at it every time. There were certainly shows where I was like, I can't cry anymore. <laughs> I need to not feel this right now. <laughs> and so, um, but I, but I will say that every single survivor that reached out to me and wrote me letters of, of their experience watching Jagged Little Pill gave me the fuel to keep doing it every night. And that connection is everything. My God, we're nothing if we're not connected. Absolutely. Your dad, in a sort of very ironic and... Um, symmetrical turn of, of destiny is now working with Marishka on Law & Order SVU. How, I bet, what does he think of your role? I think, you know, I was, I was mostly nervous about my dad seeing this show because I was like, asking your father to watch you get assaulted at a party on stage with 1,200 people is hard. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's not... That is not something any father wants to see. And my dad is just the most protective, wonderful, loving man in the world. And he's so proud of me. And there's nothing in the world that was going to keep him from that theater. But it was definitely something I thought about. I imagine it was very hard for him to watch, but he never let me know it, which I think is really generous of him. Um, but he he knows every step of this process, how intense and and moving it was. And I think luckily enough, him having that experience on SVU and with Marishka gave him this vocabulary with the subject matter and this understanding of why these stories are so important to tell that I feel really lucky he sort of had coming into it. You released some new music. 
recently. I did, yes. So I'm let's talk about excited. music a little bit. You had an original okay. track featured in Stuart Bloomberg's film, Thanks for Sharing, in 2013. Yes. You also collaborated with the musician John O'Callaghan to release the song Mess of a Machine, which was featured in his album Unfold. You also released your debut EP titled American Spirit in 2015, yeah. and you just released some brand new music. Where can our listeners hear and listen and acquire your music? Um, all the streaming places, so Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, all, all the places on the internet, YouTube, you name it. And any future plans to concentrate more specifically on performing your music? Any, <sighs> any touring, any performing in places that will allow for social distancing? <laughs> My my dream since I was a kid has always been to tour my own music. So I cannot wait for the day that that can happen. Um, of course, that seems like a <laughs> far away dream at the at the current moment. But I mean, until then, I'm playing live shows on Instagram all the time and constantly looking for ways to sort of, you know, play music and raise some money and do little live concerts here and there for charity wherever I can. Catherine, I have two last questions for you. Yes. I understand you have a tattoo of a line from Patti Smith's book, Just Kids, on your rib. Which line? <laughs> it's the line, like a pearl. So there's the moment in the book where she's talking to Janis Joplin, who has been forever my just idol. And since I was a little girl, everyone told me I sang like her. And so I started listening to her and I listened to her albums every single day throughout all of high school. And there was a moment where she wrote her this poem and the poem is like, you know, I go home, I'm playing for all these people in the show and then I go home and I'm so alone. And so there's this moment in the book where Patty's leaving the room and, and Janice goes, how do I look? And Patty goes, like a pearl, a pearl mm. of a girl. And so I got like a pearl right on my rib. My last question is this. Is it true that somebody recently created an Instagram account for your eyebrows? It is true. It is. <laughs> you and Cara Delevingne. <laughs> exactly. My eyebrows are true. I know I was so excited when she came to the show. I was like, my my twin and brows. Um, I know it's true. These brows, they're genetic. I got them from my father. I used to like tweeze them like crazy in middle school. And then I just gave up and, and they've been growing free ever since. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are definitely beautiful and worthy of an Instagram account. Do you know the name Thank of the you. account? I think it's KG Browstagram. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is awesome. pretty fantastic. I love people. I love that somebody decided <sighs> to do that. It's just so special. Well, Captain Gallagher, thank you so much for being on today's show. Thank you so much for being such an illuminating, illuminating spirit in so many ways. Thank you so much for having me. You are such an incredible, incredible person, and what you do is amazing. Thank oh, you. thank you, thank you, thank you. To hear Catherine Gallagher's music, you can find her on Spotify, on YouTube, on Instagram. You can see more of everything that she does at CatherineGallagherMusic.com. To find out more about the musical Jagged Little Pill, please go to jaggedlittlepill.com. This is the 16th year we've been broadcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. 
To contribute to the Joyful Heart Foundation, go to give.joyfulheartfoundation.org backslash design matters. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded in non-pandemic times at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor and chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit and the art director is Emily Wyland.